If you will, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This week we began the exposition of the book of Genesis. Last week we looked at the parts and span of the book. We showed that Moses, though not the only author, is clearly credited for the writing of Genesis. This points to the fact that there has never been a time that there was not a recording of history. Thus, there is no such thing as prehistoric. Man couldn't be prehistoric. History has always been written. We pointed out the fact that Genesis and, in fact, all the Bible has been written in plain language and logic we can understand. Now we will look at the very first verse of the Bible. This simple statement sets our mind to read and understand not only Genesis, but the rest of the Bible. It also points out how we are to interpret the things we encounter in the, in the creation and our own existence. We will see from verse 1 that God the Lord of heaven and earth is so because he created all that we see and do not see. We will also be confronted with the fact that there was nothing before this creation day started. There was a time when time, matter, and energy sprang into existence and at the same moment. But before all this, we will see the presumption that we should share with Moses. From this we will learn there is something missing here. There was a beginning. Jesus was in the beginning. The Creator created from nothing. God the Creator is sovereign ruler of all. The Creator created the heavens and the earth. Stand to honor the reading of God's Word this morning and remain standing as we ask God the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Genesis 1, verse 1, the Word of the Lord reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Let us pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this, your word. Lord, we pray, God, that you would allow this word to be written in our hearts and in our minds. That, God, you would set us upon the path of glorifying you, following you, and thinking your thoughts after you, Lord God. We know that this can only be done by your powerful Holy Spirit, and may he do so at the behest of our blessed, son, uh, our blessed Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I typed up the first point this, uh, this last week, week before last, I honestly prayed that my wife wouldn't get up and waterboy me because I'm saying there's something missing. And she doesn't like talk like that. But I hope she knows me by now that I don't really believe there's anything missing. So... The first point is there's something missing here. The first thing we sh that should catch our eye when we read this verse is that there is something that, do that it does not say. In our 21st century culture, we should expect that there would be of necessity a, an apologetic for the existence of God. We should expect to get to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and have Moses do a dissertation while there must be a God. How there has to be a God before he ever talks about God existing. But we don't see that. We should expect Moses to first to want to show us that there is a God before he begins to tell us what this God has done. But really, this is not missing. 
we feel like it is missing as we are constantly called to give proof for God. We fall into the understanding that this is our duty from 1 Peter 3.15, which reads, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense, an apologetic, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But Peter is not telling us, as so many apologists wrongly think today, that we should first prove that there is a God, any God, the deist God, any God in general, then show that this God has to be the God of the Bible. This is starting in reverse. Everybody knows that there's a God. I don't care what they say or how they live, they know there is a God. Rather, having sanctified the Lord in our hearts, we believe His Word. This means that we believe Paul when he tells the Romans that all the world knows that there is a God and that it is the God of the Bible. Romans 1, 18-23 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. Let's stop there for a second. God has revealed himself to all men. Amen. Everything that you need to know that God exists is here. And God is revealing it to everyone. Do you know why your children so easily go, Yep, I believe that. When you sit down with them and you go through the Bible with them and you talk about the love of Jesus and you talk about God, they will so readily believe because only a fool would believe this God here on its own. Amen. Let's go out and take a bunch of M80s and blow up and make a car. No fool would think that. No fool would think that. But men do proclaim it. Let's continue. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they knew God, they did not justify, glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into, the, into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Now, we say, well, you know, men don't make idols anymore. Oh, yes, they do. They look in the mirror and make an idol out of that every day in our culture. Their idols are themselves. But we need to understand that they're dumb idols, just like the dumb idols in the Old Testament, that have mouths and can't speak, and eyes and can't see and ears who can't hear and those who worship them become like them and that's why humanism always degenerates into uh, mind control, thought control no free speech slavery it always does because you have to become like the image of that God and it usually becomes the state as we're seeing today so then what Moses does is assume that all who read Genesis 
have this knowledge, even though they may suppose suppress it in unrighteousness. Sorry. Then, rather than accommodate for their sinful repression, Moses, as we should, presses the truth and simply states that God is there in the beginning. This is just simply allowing the Bible to set our thinking. Many call this presuppositional apologetics, and rightly so, and it is, but we must understand that this is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. He has told us that every man knows he exists and that he is Lord, and they are without excuse. So we shouldn't make up excuses for them. Their daddy didn't love them, so they hate God. No. No, that doesn't fly. When they stand before the king of glory, he's not going to say, I'm going to give you a pass because your daddy didn't love you. He's not. And I want to tell you, if you give them a pass now, you're damning them to hell. Now, you don't have to be as loud and boisterous as I'm being right now, but you must love them enough to tell them the truth. You know God exists, and you know your actions displease and dishonor Him, and that there is a day of judgment coming for you. You know that. You can lie to yourself. You can lie to me. You can try to repress it with your unrighteous actions, but you know it's true. You know it's true. And the only hope to get out of this is that someone die in your place. And guess what? Good news. They have. Jesus Christ died for sinners. That those who have repressed the truth and unrighteousness may be forgiven and have eternal life through his death, Amen. burial, and resurrection. All may masquerade as thoughtful, demanding proof but we know that they know the king has no clothes. Now, you know that old story, right? Two tailors come into town. The king always loved new things. They told him they were going to make him some magical clothes. And only the smartest people could see it. So they worked. Well, they really didn't. And then they come in and they told the king, here's your wardrobe, and nobody could see it. And everybody was afraid to be called stupid. So... They acted like they were beautiful clothes, like they could see them. And he rode through town butt naked. <laughs> you remember that story as a kid, right? Guess what? The king's naked, and all of us are acting like he's got clothes on in our culture. God exists, and you cannot live in his creation outside of his laws. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. There was a beginning. The first words of Revelation are translated in English in the beginning. In the Hebrew, this phrase is straightforward and plain. It simply means before there was anything, there was a beginning. It is rightly translated uh, this way in most English translations. The, the Greek translation of the Septuagint has the idea of an absolute beginning. This means that the Jewish church, at the time of its writing, understood this to be the beginning of all things. The understanding of the church has traditionally followed this understanding. Many have questioned this, but with little success. Only as the theologian places scientific opinion as his authority can the traditional reading of this verse be overturned. Most would agree 
that this is the wrong place to set our authority, that is, in science. So we need to understand there are some, there's many. Guys, listen, what you're going to be taught today and, and, and over the next several weeks about the creation, if you go out into the marketplace, if you go out into the world, you're going to find more and more that you're a minority if you believe this. The Christian church, the evangelical Christian church, reformed thinkers, conservative Christians have tried to wrest the meaning of the, of the Bible in the first two chapters of Genesis completely out of its context so that geolo I mean, uh, geology and biology would determine what it actually teaches. Science has become the authority. Because, and we know this, we know this simply because nobody coming to this text in any translation would ever come to the conclusions that they've made. And it started in the late 1700s when geologists started telling everybody rocks were millions of years old. And it's funny, as each generation goes by, those rocks get older. Not by 40 or so years, but by millions. It's, it's crazy. Right? And, and they say, well, this, this carbon dating, it's got it all figured out. Well, guy, you, you know how fast they're walking and you know where they are, but you don't know where they started. There's no way you can come to a clear determination. And that's why they continue to get older and older and older because it is faulty. You've only got two of the three parts of the equation you need to tell us how old things are. It's that simple. And I'm, listen, as far as science goes, you call any of my science teachers in high school, I am an idiot. Okay? I, this is, that is the thing I struggled with. I hated science. If they'd have said, you pay $1,000, I would have worked three summers straight in a row to get my $1,000 so I would not have to take another science class. I hated it. Hated it. It's not bad. We need science. But I'm no good at it, okay? But it is simple to understand that if you don't have all three parts, you can't know. You just can't know it. You can't understand it. Okay, so here's the thing that we need to, uh, we need to understand. The Bible... Uh, has had the answer from the beginning, and science has finally, in the last 80 years, caught up. Um, the fact that time, matter, and energy all started at the same time has been proven by Einstein's theory of relativity. By the way, that is the most proofed theory in the world. No other theory has been proofed so many times by scientists in so many different ways. It, it can stand as a truism. Now, in science, now they can't absolutely prove it true, but as far as proofs go, it is proved the most of any other theory in the history of science, right? But this theory so pointed to a beginning and a beginner that Einstein fudged his math for 15 to 20 years. He put out his theory and he put in bad math because he didn't like the implications. He didn't like what it said. He actually went from an atheist to a theist because of it. He finally was point, pushed to the point where he had to say, there is a beginning. If there's a beginning, there has to be a beginner. He was smart enough to realize that. Unfortunately, unless he did something different on his deathbed, he never repented uh, of thinking that this God was uh, a hands-off God. He felt it safer sitting in the judgment seat judging God for pain and suffering in the world than to say that there was a creator. In reality, he knew that if there was a creator, 
then we are all accountable to him. This creation of time also fits with what we are told in other places in the Bible. John 1.3 reads, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Hebrews 1.2 reads, has, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then uh, Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, there was no matter before God said, let there be, right? This word translated worlds in Hebrews 1-2 has also the meaning of ages or eternity. This points to the fact that God was and that God was, and it is not simply eternal because eternity did not exist until he created it in the beginning. God is not like me and you, trapped in time. We will live for eternity with Christ, but the idea of eternity contain, contains a time element. God created the ages and therefore is not contained in the ages. He is completely utter and outside. I love Augustine's illustrations. I've heard many of them about how God is outside of time. Augustine said, God is like a man standing in a high tower on a hill. And he's looking out over a curvy road. And as he sees travelers who cannot see around the next bend, he sees it all. He sees what's coming and what has passed. It is all before him all at one time because he is not trapped in time. Our moments pass, but they never pass with God because he is utterly and completely outside of that time. Now, the great thing for us is God is not only completely and utterly transcendent, but he is also imminent. He is with us in this time, even though he is outside that time, and he has come inside time with the Son as, the whole, uh, as Christ and died in time for our salvation and to purchase the nations which he will have as his footstool in time and history even though he is utterly outside of time. If that not blown your mind yet, then I'm just going to stop because you're not paying attention. Right? You're just not, you're just not there. Um, Jesus was in the beginning. So he, we saw that the trans, uh, translation of Genesis into Greek has the phrase that is, is in our English translation. The phrase has the meaning of an absolute beginning. So that our last point was that there was nothing, not even time, until God created it. Now we see that the Apostle John takes the exact phrase to start his gospel. John 1, 1 through 3 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. i got to get a drink of water. Hang on. So, John says, In the beginning then diverges from the, from the Genesis account. John tells us that there was a beginning, then tells us that the logos, or word knowledge, was with God. And we're going to see this more next week when God actually speaks the word. Just a preview. What this helps us to see is what we have a hint of in the name Moses uses for God. Throughout Genesis 1, God is called Elohim. 
right? So the word in Hebrew for God is El, or Elo, right? And, in, and the word that Moses uses is Elohim. Elohim is the plural form of El, but we must not take this too far, as Calvin warns, or we'll begin to slide into modalism, because next we see, excuse me, in verse 2, that the spirit of Elohim, right, is over the waters. And so we need to make sure that we don't decide we're going to slice God up into pieces or make him into modes. But we do see plurality. What we see here is that God the Father and God the Son were together in one essence along with the Holy Spirit before all this beginning began. There are several places that we can take others to show that God the Son has the same attributes that God the Father has. Ergo, Colossians 1, 15-20, Philippians 2, 5-11, and Hebrews 1, 3. Again, if you want those texts, let me know. I'll email them to you. But the best place to see this truth is in Hebrews 1, 8, which reads, But to the Son he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This helps us to understand that there is no way that we can say that the opposite of what God the Father says about the Son, He is God. He is with Him in the beginning. In fact, the Greek of uh, John 1, 1 is as God was, the Son was. That's how it is actually literally should be translated. At least I'm told. I'm not a Greek scholar. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Greek scholars tell us that's exactly what it should say. Right? As God was, the Son was. What does that mean? They're the same essence. They're of the same stuff. They're God. One God. Right? Behold, Israel, your God is one. Right? And so... We need to understand that, but we need to also understand that there is a division here in persons, and though God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit make up the one God, Elohim, we see here in Hebrews 1.8, which is a quote, that God the Father addresses God the Son as God, as God. So we see that, and then not only that, we see in the next verse of Genesis 1 that uh, Moses calls the Spirit God. He calls him by the same name, Elohim. All things were created through him. All things were created through him. And we're going to see how the three acted together as one in unison um, to... Uh, to, to create. They had their separate roles acting as one God uh, together. Isn't it wonderful being a Trinitarian? <laughs> Knowing that this is the only way that it really could work out? Uh, I mean, because a, a monotheistic God, you become a, you might as well be, a, you know, a Mormon or, or worse, a, uh, you know, a, is, Islamic, whatever they're called. Mohammedan, that's what, that's what Calvin is called. Anyway, so, when you when you you cannot have our thinking and our culture without the Trinity. That's why we're going to where we are. Fourth, creator created from nothing. The word here to create is a word that is only used for God creating. In other words, 
This word is never used of man making or creating something. It is always. It doesn't always necessitate that it is from nothing, but it is always God's acting of creating. It is only and always used for God creating something. If we look back at John 1.3, it will help us to see what is here being created. So if we combine these, what's being said in these two separate verses, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, God created the heavens and the earth, and then we're told what that means. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So this idea that at some point prior to this beginning, God made all the matter that he then uses is illogical. Right? This is God making the heavens and the earth in preparation of making them with form and filling them with things. We're going to see that's important next week. Right? So, we also see this in the grammar as Kel and Deltrix, Deltrix, I always say his name wrong, Deltrix point out, this is used in a verb form that is always used to indicate the beginning of a historical narrative. Thus, absent any mention of pre-existing matter as material, we should assume that God created even the matter we, he will later transform into completed forms. Remember, he made dust and he made man from the dust. This excludes the idea that there is this large gap of time as pre uh, are proposed by those holding uh, to the gap theory. Uh, and there's two schools there. Very small school believes that Adam was created and then had uh, another wife, uh, which is a Jewish myth and a lie, and that she refused to submit to his authority as the man and sinned, and then God judged the world. The other, which is the more prominent, is that um, Satan was the ruler of the earth, uh, set in place by God, and there was thousands and millions of soulless human creatures who lived for millions of years on the earth, and Satan fell away and tried to rebel against God, and so God flooded the world as we see him do actually in Genesis 7 and 8. So I'm just going to be frank. This is poppycock. There's nothing in this text that would point to any gap whatsoever. Again, we're using science as our authority when we try to come up with such things. We're not coming to the text plainly and understanding it by its language. We are making up tales because it doesn't fit what scientists tell us and we want to be respectable. Right? You know, if you, if you ever have hope to be a theologian and have your papers reviewed and taken seriously, then you have to believe some kind of other stuff and or they won't accept you. They just won't. But you know what I say? Who cares? I want to be faithful to God and His text. So that's what we're going to do. Um, we should always, always, always go to the clear language uh, that's indicating. We're going to see next week. I'm attacking the gap theory this week, long day, uh, uh, a day age next week. So um, if you're a day ager, next week's not going to be fun for you. Um, and then we can argue about how wrong you are next week. Um, all right, so... 
Next, we see that God created, uh, God the Creator is the sovereign ruler of all. There is a clear correlation that if God created it, it belongs to Him. And we see this throughout the Bible. Psalm 95, 3-5 read, For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hand formed the dry land. You see, because God made it, it belongs to Him. So, so this, so this foolishness. Why? Who is God to tell me I can't love somebody of the same gender, or that there is a such thing as gender? Uh, well, because He made you, and you don't belong to yourself. You are His to dispense with as He pleases. So repent or perish, right? Is that, is that, and I and I and I want to be clear. It sounds like I'm being mean. I'm not being mean. What did Jesus say? They were no more wicked than, than anybody else in Judea. And if you don't repent, you likewise will perish. We need to be able to be that bold with people again. We've wrung our hands hoping people will like us long enough. It is time to tell people that they need to repent. Amen. They need to repent of this foolishness. They need to repent of these lies that they're trying to live by. And they need to repent of the wickedness of their hearts that would come up with these things to repress righteousness. I got off track a little bit. I'm sorry. He has right and power over it to do with it as he wishes. And we're going to see that in a couple months when we get to chapter 7 when God decides he's done with all flesh. He's going to get rid of everything. Even the animals. And, 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 and us animal lovers go, but you know, my auntie didn't do anything. Right? My little baby girl, she ain't done nothing. You know my auntie, right? My dog. Don't pet her, she might bite you, but she is a sweet girl. And, and it just breaks your heart to think of all those animals, right? But listen to me. They're gods. They belong to him. Annie belongs to God because he created her. And so, because he made it, it belongs to him. This means that God owns even all of mankind. Psalm 45, 9 reads, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd on the earth. In other words, fight with each other all you want to. But shall the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Here the prophet Isaiah tells his readers that we cannot answer back to God. For a fuller treatment and exposition of this text, you can read Romans 9 at your leisure. Paul uses these very words to argue what I'm saying. God has the right over every human being to do with them as he pleases. Amen. Give them cancer, send them to hell, exalt them to heaven. He can do as he wishes. This understanding means that God is free to do with his creation what he wishes. If God condemns us to a life of disease and darkness, it is his prerogative, and we should rejoice that he has done anything with us whatsoever. Guys, we, 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 need, to, we need to get this right. In, in two or three weeks, our, our government's going to decide whether or not what I'm doing is legal. 
They're going to decide like it is their right to do so. Your pastor could actually be in jail in three or four weeks for preaching the gospel, for telling people that if you're a man, you can't be a girl. If you love other men and you're a man, you're a sinner. It's an abomination to God, and you're going to fry for it. Then I could be in jail. We need to understand if I go to jail, that's just what God wants for me. And it's good. It's good. It might be really good for my wife, but it's going to be good for me too. And I, and I hope, I hope and pray that if they pass this nonsense and they bust in here and they arrest me, that I will be like John MacArthur and say, well, I've never done jail ministry before. Let's go. <laughs> I hope I'm that bold. I hope I'm that brave. And I'm going to say it's going to have to be by the Holy Spirit. Because there's two things I don't like. I don't like being away from my wife, and I don't like being able to not do what I want to do. Right? But remember what Christ told Peter. When you was young, you went wherever you went, wanted. But when you come up, become old, they're going to part your hands and take you where you do not wish to go. Well, that may be our lot. That's okay. That's okay because God has a right to do with this massive dust that he wants. I'm just, I'm just praising God that he breathed into this dust that's worthless and made it alive. That I could know him. That I could worship with you guys. That I could love him uh, even though I'm unworthy to have had that honor. But this is also to our comfort. And this is why. Because being sovereign, God can make his, make his promises in prophecy come to pass. If God can do all he pleases in heaven and earth then nothing can stay his hand or thwart his plans. Why is this happening to me? Because God said so. And it is good. And he loves you. This is what's best for you. And God has promised good to us, eternal blessedness in Christ our Savior. Psalm 146, 5 and 6 says, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. Then here in this verse in Genesis, we see that God begins by giving his people hope. He is the only one who can help us. His purpose is being good. He will help us. We, we can rest in that. We can rest in that. Listen, Paul made it perfectly clear. How can you argue against this? If he gave us his son, his only beloved son, what else would he withhold from you? What good thing would he say no to? The creator created the heavens and the earth. This phrase, heaven and earth, is a figure of speech meaning everything. The Hebrew had no single word meaning universe. Thus, this phrase likely could be used to mean everything contained in these two opposites, the earth and then everything around it. But Jordan points out that this also could mean the universe seen from man's perspective and the abode of God and his angels. Notice later that God is said to make the heaven, what we would think the heaven, right? The atmosphere and those things outside the physical universe. And he created the stars and the planets day four. So, 
Jordan holds that he's speaking of the creation and heaven, the abode of God and his angels. Um, thus, when Moses says earth, he could mean the universe and all it contains from man's perspective. Uh, this then would mean that heaven is the place which God and his angels are, and that is the opposite of earth and all that surrounds it in the universe. Some have tried to make this verse into a summary statement or a header for what follows. The problem with this is multiple. First, verse 2 in the Hebrew states with starts sorry, with a conjunction, which is the equivalent to our and. So we could read Genesis 1 and 2 literally this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the, whole, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Actually, in the King James, that is how it is. I think in the RSV as well. There's an and there. Why? Because that's what it starts with, an and. It tells us it's a continuing narr narration. It's not a, this happened, and oh, by the way, this is how it happened. And that's how people want to make it sound. Uh, the verb form, next, the, verb, the verb form of uh, create would not be what it is if this was either a summary or a header, header statement. Where did the material come from if not being created here in verse 1 when God could not be doing what he, we have already proved is said he is doing here? Rather, this needs to be understood as H.C. Leopold has said, Verse 1 is the record of the first part of the work brought into being on the first day. This seems to point to the same thing that Paul tells us in Colossians 1.16. The word of the Lord reads, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, if you were with us on Wednesday nights, then you know... Dominions, principalities, and powers speak of the spiritual realm outside and behind the physical powers on this earth. And so, God was creating all things. He lists the all things. He says whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Here then, Moses says that here is the beginning of all things that were created. This also would support Jordan's view that the heaven is the abode of God and his angels, pointing to the possibility that this is the point in which God created the angels. Right? So, not saying it is. You're not going to be dogmatic about it. You're not going to have a test about it later. But it's possible. That is what's being said here in verse 1. It's a lot, right? I told you it's going to be a slow march through the book. Do you believe me now? It's, we're going to take our time. We're going to take our time because I think it's important with what we're facing. So, our sovereign creator, may he bless us by choosing to create, he, he's blessed us by choosing to create everything. Everything belongs to him. And may God bless us to press his lordship in every area of life that we can rejoice in him and that his knowledge would cover the earth as the waters covers the sea. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this word. We thank you, God, for this book of beginnings, Lord, that has blessed us to have an understanding of all that you will tell us later. God, may we set our mind on its truth, and may we glorify you 
and everything that is done for the rest of the time here today. Father, for it is in your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, in His holy name we pray. Amen. So,